afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of We're Gonna Need a Bigger Show, and we are continuing our Chattanooga Film Festival coverage. We Today we are talking to the director of my favorite film at the festival, which was Dave Made a Maze. Uh, it is whimsical and dark and inventive and really just one of the most clever special films I've seen in the last, you know, five years or so. Uh, today we are joined by Bill Watterson. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for the extremely kind words. I'm glad you dug. Yeah, it was uh, it was really insane. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't heard of the film until the, the festival announced it. Um, and then I watched the trailer and I was like, this is zany. Like, <laughs> this is really <laughs> wild. Um, we and... were definitely going for zany. I, I think that's the first. <laughs> I've heard whimsical, which is good. I've heard fat shit, which is great. Um, but I think that's the first time I've heard zany. Oh, like, good. Finally, somebody said zany. <laughs> What do I have to do to earn a zany, a zany from right here. My and, God! And of course, you know Chattanooga, uh, the the festival. They they really did it up and 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 built the maze and uh, which was that's, that's that is beyond. I, I don't even. I haven't even comprehended that yet. I mean, there's a lot of amazing <laughs> things that have happened as a result of having made this movie. Sure. Many of which are, you know, leave me speechless, bring me to tears, overwhelm me, but I I don't even know how to begin to process the, the, the effort, the passion, the excitement, just the inspiration. You know, the, we did something that inspired other people to make. We made a movie right. about an artist. Sure. And, and about, you know, to get high-minded about it, about the creative process in, very, in many ways. Um, it's, the, the movie is can be interpreted as an homage to the creative process. Absolutely. Um, uh, or the physical manifestation of what the creative process feels like emotionally. Sure. And then to have someone then be inspired to create, not just someone, but an army of people <laughs> to just get together and get creative and get their hands dirty and bust out the glue gun and make a cardboard tank. <laughs> sure. I mean, it was... Too much to take in, and 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 I have to say, utterly heartbroken that we couldn't be there. The, the same night that we were screening there is was our opening night in our hometown. Mine, the producer, the executive oh, producer, wow. yeah, and many of the crew that worked on the film were all from Cleveland. And that same night, we had organized uh, a huge opening night at a 400 seat theater across the street from my brother's bar who hosted an after party next door to a pinball parlor who oh, hosted incredible. a pre party. And on that same, in, in the art space next door to the theater, we actually had our original props and production design sure. and hand drawn storyboards and stuff on display. Like we, and we had all that set up before we heard about Chattanooga. So oh, there was just no, no there, there was no being there. And the fact that we couldn't, was just a gut punch. Sure. Well, rest assured that it was very painstakingly recreated. That was one of the most surprising things to me after seeing the movie uh, was me that, too. <laughs> I mean, everything was just looked exactly as it did in the film. And, uh, and some see, of the colors, even, I mean, yeah, you know, that was small detail wild. Um, and, you know, seeing it on an IMAX screen was, was something special as well. Um, uh, don't rub it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was really incredible. And before we jump too much, you know, into, into the film, uh, I kind of want to talk about, you know, what brought you to, to Dave in the first place. So, uh, what was, what was your early life like with film? I mean, did you, you always have an interest? I know you've, you've done acting as well. Uh, did you always have yeah, an interest in performing and, and that kind of thing? This is crazy because it's some stuff that started to come out, not only just with interviews, but with friends who've gotten in touch and, and uh, you know, parents of friends who've seen the movie. Sure. They're like, yep, that's what it was like hanging out with you guys. Uh, <laughs> having you guys make a mess in their living room. But um, I, I, when, I, when I was younger, there's a few things. First of all, every birthday it was, we're going to the movies. Sure. That, that was my request. What do you want to do for your birthday? We're going to the movies. And this will reveal my age, but, I, you know, I think three years in a row it was Kiwi's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice and Time Bandits. Oh, that's incredible. So it's like I'm seeing insane movies at a very young age sure. where, you know, in this nice window where you didn't have what you have now, which is big studio control, the obvious endings, you know, stars. I mean, there was, there was elements of that, but it was more just they were letting people make crazy stuff. If you look back at those John Carpenter movies, which, you know, maybe they didn't succeed financially but oh my god they were just doing whatever they wanted crazy endings they weren't happy-go-lucky they they were just you know the incredible playgrounds for imagine you're talking about gilliam and and uh carpenter and uh and um burton you know just people just going nuts sure and that was the norm for the movies that I was seeing. So I had that. I was a Star Wars kid, so I had action figures, and, you know, I, which basically had your own little, you know, army men and everything. So you're, you're setting out scenarios and playing them out in front of you. <laughs> um, and then we also had, and this I'm only realizing recently, we had a huge VHS camera and a bunch of Star Wars figures and a bunch of fireworks. And uh, we used to make war movies. Um, you know, you did the ad act looked amazing on camera because it was battery operated, so it actually like choo 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 and the guns would move and everything. I mean, we'd you know run our our army trucks across the screen. We hung a an old big old metal round lamp to a rope and made it a, a UFO that would fly around. Oh, wow. I think one of our, one of our best special effects was um, we had those plastic disc shooter guns. Sure. Um, and if you put the gun right under the camera and you're like, launch the launch the fleet or something, and you start shooting the gun, <laughs> it looks like all these UFOs, like, you know, <laughs> flying out from under the camera. So we did a bunch of, I mean, I made a bunch of those movies. They were terrible. Um, <laughs> Alan Quartermain in the Dragon's Chamber. Oh, I did a whole great. series of, um, uh, I did a whole series of alien invasion movies. I think I did three of them. And then, uh, Oh, well, I made a ninja movie called The Seeker, which was just a complete disaster. Um, <laughs> but it had the Who's The Seeker as the theme song. Oh. <laughs> and then immediately cut to two 14-year-olds just as ninjas going, hula, hula, hula. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really bad. But So I was actually making movies. I mean, you know, editing in camera. Just like sure. Whenever you press the button is when, is when the cut is. Um, which made for some glorious mistakes. Um, you know, I don't know how many scenes someone looks at the camera and calls cut before it gets cut. <laughs> but that's in the movie because we didn't have an editor. Um, so I was actually making movies as a kid. Didn't even I didn't even really connect that to a later life. Um, you get 
you know, when you get in college, you know, it's like, what job are you going to have? And you're like, I don't know, advertising? Right. You know, and it just all goes away. Sure. Um, and so, I was just lucky enough to have um, a friend's father encourage me to take a chance. At the time, it was with music. I'd gotten into a band. Okay. But it just, it just always seemed like the creative life was something other people did and I consumed. Sure. You know, I just, it took me a long time, and this is true about a lot of things, and this may speak more to my personality than anything else, but it took me a long time to like pull the curtain back and be like, oh, it's just a guy pushing buttons. It's not the wizard sure. of Oz. Well, I, um, I, I think and that, I, that... I could be the guy pushing the button. Right. <laughs> and I think that what you know you saying that that speaks to you personally i mean i think it it probably speaks to number one a lot of our listeners and who are also creatives i think that's a thing that we all come to at some point is the oh there there this is something that is attainable and this is something that you know i can do um that's 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 really interesting i mean for me even i would read on the road in high school and think oh god if only i could go on a road trip (laughs) and it was like well Actually, you just go on a road trip. Right. That's how you, these things happen. And I didn't. There's just a disconnect between this, you know, fantasy world of, of amazing experience that I thought I could only experience secondhand. Sure. Um, and it took things like, you know, a good friend saying, "Okay, we've got Christmas break, freshman year or sophomore year of college. I can't remember what which year. Uh, we're going to both be home Christmas break." let's do something together. And he was saying, let's go on a road trip. Where do we go? Well, it's going to be winter, so let's go south where it won't be cold. Okay, what's south? Graceland. Okay, great. We'll go to Graceland. (laughs) But, you know, I'm not the guy who leads that charge. I'm not the guy who's like, I want to go to Graceland. Who who are my partners in crime going to be? You know, I I don't know if it's just a timidity or lack of vision or or what, or just shyness or, or, you know, fear or whatever it is, but I was just never seemed to be that guy who's like, let's go for it. We're going for it. Come on, guys. Sure. So, it's you know, it took a long time, which is kind of what you need to be as a director. Right, yeah. It took a long time to get to that place where it's like, I know what I want to do. I know where I want to go. I know how to get there. And even if I don't know exactly how to get there, I know that I'm going to get there. So, come on, guys. Get on board. Translating the station. It just took forever for me to get to that mentality in life so when when did you start to discover that did had you started to do some acting or you know when did that start to coalesce for you um well the music, music was a big one because okay. you're not alone you've right, got a gang right, right and you're like okay let's get in the van let's go make this happen together um so that made it a little easier uh and i i had stage presence as a bass player sure. um very much the Roger Daltrey school of rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> bum note and a beat of sweat. <laughs> you know, I wasn't necessarily. I can't read music, but I can I can blow the doors off, book off stage. Um, and I got pretty far with that. You know, I got one band signed to an indie label in New York and getting really good press. Time out New York and Entertainment Weekly. Another band creatively doing uh, a very original stuff. Um, and, and I was playing, I, you know, I had a unique style on the bass. It was a three piece. So I had a ton of space to really go crazy on the bass. Sure. Um, not, I mean, we won't rush or anything, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was way better than that. But, um, um, and that, you know, that, that got my taste for the creative life. I couldn't, I couldn't do a nine to five. I couldn't wear a suit to work i couldn't i couldn't do it i couldn't do it it was it would have killed me i I got to a point where it's like there's kind of no turning back uh and then 
when the, all the bands broke up, because all bands break up, um, I, I'd had a production resume because I, I worked part-time jobs as much as I could, and there's there's a fair amount of production in, in Cleveland at the time, so I, I had a decent resume for, for film and TV production behind the scenes, which helped because you started seeing how things work, chain of command, um, you know, what, what goes into it all. Right. Um, how the sausage is made and uh, <laughs> everything blew up and I was like, well, I guess I'll go to LA. I have a TV instruction resume. I hate the snow. Um, and out here, I was really missing the first couple of years were tough because I was working really hard PA jobs, crazy long hours, bad pay. And everyone was like, Oh, you're the musician. We're going to see gigs. And I were, you know, I know a friend needs a bass player. I, was like, I don't think I can do that anymore. I don't think I can start from scratch at this age with a band having spent 10 years watching everything explode in my face. Yeah, um, sure. So it was a long transition, but I was missing performing. Didn't have formal acting training, but I was really missing performing. So I started studying. I started, I took a scene study class. It took a lot of improv and sort of tried to translate whatever that performance stage presence was as a musician. You know, the emotion that I brought to performing as a musician and the, the, the presence and the truth and the whatever the hell. Um, try to bring that to, to acting, mm-hmm. to another kind of performing. Um, and that's got me going. I, I was lucky enough to start booking some commercials, a couple TV shows here and there, a couple movies, but uh, mainly commercials and, and get out of having to work in restaurants and work production assistant jobs on sets where you, you, you lose your life to it. Sure. Um, and then in the downtime afforded to me by being an actor, I took filmmaking classes at city college and, oh, wow. okay. you know, wrote and, and workshop stuff and made some, you know, we made, made a few web series and just sort of got, just made a lot sure. of stuff and worked in an editing room and worked on, um, with a cameraman on my own stuff and, Sort of figuring out how how much you need to do, how much of the story is told in the edit bay, and you know how much. I don't know, just to, uh, becoming more efficient with the camera work. You need to shoot the whole five minute scene every single time if sure. you're not going to use it as a one You know, like all, all those kinds of things. The nuts and bolts. Um, yeah, and then as an actor working on tons of student films, I was also tracking. Okay, what is not working? What sucks about being on this set? Sure. What's sucks about working with this director right. and then when something you know when when you get a young guy who's great like wow why did that work why did that work and then as a full as an actor and just having gone to a great college that has a lot of creative people who are getting more and more successful as we get older i i had and then working on sets professionally i had a pool of top shelf directors to draw from sure. when it was my turn and sure. Like, dude, let me take you to coffee. Let me buy you a beer. Let's let's grab lunch. I got I got questions. One guy let me, uh, Ruben Fleischer, who's you know did zombie oh, sure. land. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, he used to uh, through college friends as a friend. He let me shadow him one day on set, and wow. I was just sitting there with a notebook, like, ooh, ooh, wow, ooh, 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 and it was great because he was actually co-directing or directing with a partner or working with a partner. So basically, whenever one of them was engaged, I could be talking to the other and asking questions. Sure, sure. And then the other one would have to go and work, and I could pull Ruben aside and has quite. And I just had this, you know, huge list of of advice and do's and things to look out for. And then it's not that I'm giving advice, but if I were to, the another thing that was really helpful, I sat down. My editor 
he is married to another editor, and they work together all the time, and they work with a lot of first-time directors. Some, some very. I mean, if you look at their list of credits, it's like, oh, I've seen that. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, I remember that. You know, they, they work on some big movies. Right. And some of them were with first-time directors, some of the very, very successful actors who were getting their first chance to direct, that kind of thing. So I sat down with the two of them, two very talented editors who have often worked with first-time directors, and said, what are the mistakes that first-time directors make that you see? Sure. Because the editor's the one who's like, well, here's the movie. Right, right, yeah. Maybe the actor was happy or unhappy, maybe crafty sucked or didn't suck, but none of that matters to the editor. The editor's like, well, these are the pieces of the puzzle, and I can either put them together or I can't. Um, and they were like, they just gave me a huge notebook full of, you know, to-dos and not-to-dos, mistakes, mistakes first-time directors or, or even very successful directors sure. make that make their jobs harder. Okay, great. Here's all the things I'm not going to do. And I ended up fucking on a half a month anyway. But, so. <laughs> That's kind of the natural progression of things. Um, <laughs> right. So at this point, it sounds like, you know, you're, you've really got your sea legs under you and, you you know, you really are, are starting to become confident. Uh, is this kind of when you start to think about Dave and, and is this kind of the genesis of that idea? That came about so strangely and organically. Um, Co-writer Steve Sears, brilliant mind, friend from Second City, is just constantly writing, 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 writing. Way more prolific than I am. And I think he had a script with Maze in the title. He was working on a script called Operation Death Maze. Okay. Which I think had like a talking cheeseburger in it or something. I can't quite remember. (laughs) Total madness. And... If I remember right, because that script came up, it reminded me of a story, of a true story, where um, uh, the, the friend that made all the movies with me when, we was, when I was a kid, we made a fort in my bedroom, an awesome one, and uh, I left a note that I was going to be at his house for dinner, and my mother came home and didn't see the note. She's calling my name, doesn't get a response, opens the bedroom door, sees this fort, and freaks out that somehow I got lost. In it, <laughs> so she's tearing it apart, like calling my name, looking for it. Complete like mom logic, sure. Um, Italian mom logic, right? <laughs> or just, or just my mom logic, or just George Waterson logic. But um, I and I told that story, and Steve's—you could just see his mind blown, and he just cranked out like a sixty-page script that ultimately became Dave Made a Maze. Wow. Um, and it had, you know, his first draft had the, the origami room and the piano room and the chrysalis and all this, like, crazy stuff was already there. And then um, John Charles Meyer, who's our producer, who's a childhood friend of mine, we were in a band together in high school, um, he just, he said, I want to make this movie. And Steve said, okay, Bill's going to direct it. Sure. I don't know why Steve said that. <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. Like, I... I I don't know what to say. Steve just, uh, he, maybe he had a vision for me or he just thought it was going to be, I, I know Steve thought it was going to be the small thing that we were just going to do like in our apartment. Right. And it would just be fun to just get everyone we know. In fact, the first draft of the script, everyone was just, every, all the characters were just people we knew. Like, right. They're all the same right. people we knew. Harry, James Urbaniak's character was actually neat. So his okay. like hand-fisted <laughs> frustration is, is born out of mine on set. Right. I never know what I'm doing. Right. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think the initial idea was, yeah, we'll just bang this out. You know, just make stuff, make stuff, just keep making. And it was going to be kind of a smaller thing. So maybe that's why Steve thought I I should direct rather than make it a bigger thing by having to look externally for a director. I don't even know. Or maybe he was just looking out for me in a way that I didn't even know know how to look out for myself. I don't even know. But 
So at, at what point the project do you... got bigger and bigger and, you know, all of a sudden I'm doing podcasts with a director, you know, <laughs> something else. At what point do you realize, okay, this is, this is a lot bigger and we, you know, maybe we should get some, some, you know, star power behind it. And, you know, I mean, it just, I'm not, you know, I don't know what your budget was, but it just looks like a huge film. I mean, it is a huge film. Everything that went into it, it's just really clear that, you know, a lot of love and, and care went into it. But what at what point do you say, oh, you know, let's let's focus on casting? And what, what, what was that process like? Yeah. Well, our budget was tiny. Okay. Um, I, I try not to talk about it for sure. a bunch of industry reasons. Sure, um, sure, sure. The, the primary one being, I don't want someone to think I can do this again for this kind of money. <laughs> I couldn't. I really couldn't. It's, it, I would never put a crew and a cast through that kind of discomfort and lack of financial reward to pull something off again. It's <laughs> sure. just too hard. Right. Um, but, uh, with, I mean, one thing about starting late in life um, is that you have a huge Rolodex. Um, so I had done a lot of work at AFI as an actor, American Film Institute, as an actor. Um, they've got a great program, the SAG Conservatory, and if you're a SAG actor, you, you're eligible for all these student films, and you know they've got uh, 20, 30 directors a semester who have to make three movies each each year, sure. plus thesis films for second year. I mean, it's you could, I, there was one year I think I did 11 films with these guys. Oh, wow. Um, and, and girls. And um, I met a lot of people through that. Ultimately, my cinematographer, Jonathan Bull, came from that uh, via Dan Marks, whom I'd worked with on his thesis film. Our, our, Trisha Gum, our production designer, one of our production designers, she was the art director at Robot Chicken, and she did the oh, FFI wow. directing workshop for women. And I was a supporting actor in her thesis film. So she and I became friends and now she's, she just did Lego Batman and she's blown up completely. But, um, she was the perfect person to approach about this project. So we approached her early on and she got John Sumner attached. She's also robot chicken, but also is a fine artist who works in cardboard. And, um, then Jeff White is, is actually Trisha's fiance he was our art director and also additional production designer. And then suddenly this whole world of stop motion, robot chicken, puppetry, miniatures just opened up to us because because of Trisha's personality. I mean, it, it, people were responding to the material, but also responding to Trish and Sumner and Jeff. Sure. Jeff brought on Mike Murnane as our lead sculptor, and he came down from San Francisco. He's a, an actual member of the Cardboard Institute of Technology. So wow. it, just kept, <laughs> it just kept getting bigger in that sense on the crew creative art side. Sure. And then, you know, then we had this special, we had this very special visual world now that we knew we could, we could represent. So let's honor it with casting. And a lot of, you know, a lot of our contacts were from Second City or being actors or, or theater you know, theater companies, whatever it was. So we started getting a couple of attachments, some star names. We had some, some great attachments early on that helped us fundraise who didn't end up being available by the time we shot the movie. Um, but, uh, you know, it led to something else or someone else. And, and our casting director actually cast me and Young and the Restless. She's an old friend. We did a play together, you know, 10, sure. 10 years ago, eight years ago. Um, so it just kept being like, who do we know? Who do we know who's who do we know who thinks this is fun or great or worth it? Um, and we were lucky that a lot of people responded to the material. Like, this is crazy. I want to make it. Oh my God, you wrote something. You wrote a movie about me or whatever. You know, we just kept getting these crazy responses. Um, 
And, you know, then the dominoes just kept falling like that. But honestly, it got bigger every time. Every new actor we got, it got bigger. Every new person who came in town just to work on this, it got bigger and bigger. And then by that first morning, shooting the first, we only had 20 days of principal photography with oh, the whole wow. cast and crew. Um, we had four days of pickups for skeleton crews to shoot, like, inserts and miniatures and the village open and stuff like that. Sure, but sure. the actual bulk of the movie was shot in 20 days. Um, all on one soundstage. We only had room for no more than two sets to be standing at any given time, and most sets weren't standing for more than 24 hours. Right. Because they had to be torn down, destroyed on camera, or repurposed into another part of the maze. Wow. Um, but it was that first day with, you know, 70-some people, Nick Thune and Mira on, on set in this maze in this apartment, and it looks incredible. And you, you know, you got the camera crew doing all that, just getting everything set up, and the monitor comes up, and you look at it, and you're like, "Well, it's a movie. It's a real sure. movie, and it's bigger and it's better." And I, on that first day, I was like, "This is so much bigger than I thought." And I think everybody had that same feeling. I know I talked to a number of crew members who were like, "Yeah, we'll shoot this indie film twenty days, and a hundred bucks a day, yeah, and we'll get by." Right. Um, and then that first day was like, oh no, this is real. This is, this is for real. Like <laughs> right. James Urbaniak just showed up for his wardrobe test, and <laughs> you know Nick is riffing inside this amazing-looking German expressionist Gilliam-esque. <laughs> like this is so much bigger, and everybody just kept rising to that occasion. Sure. Um, and then it got bigger still. Like we we had a rough cut, and we're like. Okay, this is a B. This is a B plus. I know we can go further, and it's like they all turn into puppets. Let's have a scene where they all turn into puppets. You know, that wasn't in the original script. That's that was interesting. An opportunity to, you know, do a couple things to address a false mission of get us back to the maze, get us back home, and we'll be be okay. Get us back home, and we'll be okay. So then, when they do come out and they think they're home, and the maze is overgrown, that gets a bigger. You know, that's more heartbreaking, and, and you know, we we didn't have a chance to do walk and talks or really have more violent booby traps because we didn't have like a stunt budget or anything sure, like that. We sure. didn't have the space for a walk and talk. It's like, well, if they're puppets, we can have a walk and talk and we right. can have things fly at them. And through it. So it's like, we, we got to do a lot of things we didn't get to do otherwise. Plus we got to really push the um, production design even further and be more playful. You know, and it's even, there's a line in that scene that's utterly meta where Gordon is like, well, I suppose this was only a matter of time. Like, of course, we right. can't have this movie <laughs> which got a... this production design and this, you know, this this production palette right. and not have everyone turn into a puppet. It would be completely <laughs> wasted opportunity. That uh, so, that, yeah. that line in particular got a huge pop uh, in the in the theater uh, because it does. Oh, it seems like good. the it seems like the natural progression. Um, so in, in talking a little bit about the building and the shooting, how much of what was in the script, or how much did you get to collaborate? You know, with all of these really incredible you know designers and artists who who work specifically in that medium how collaborative was the you know the gags and and the the you know the site things and the different rooms how much of it you know it was, was it was very collaborative um i mean there, you know there was a giant mouth spitting origami in a pit full of origami with giant <laughs> origami cranes that's in the script so right it's like okay we got to build that and figure that out and make that work um but things like the card room where there's the king and the queen and the, the cards hanging everywhere. And it's very Alice in Wonderland, and it kind of helps inform the, the visuals of the Zoetrope by the end. 
Um, that was a matter of that wasn't in the script of the card room. That was we had two the producer had two cases of playing cards. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> and when it came time to like, okay, what do we have? What do we have that we don't have to buy? Right. How can we save money? What do we already have? And we already had all these cards, and we're like, well. Let's turn that into a theme or a room because we have the materials there. Sure, sure. Um, you know, and there was this line in an early description of Dave that's not in the script, but it was in sort of my own personal notes of kind of reflecting his relationship with Annie. And he, he, he may be lost in the clouds and sort of on this creative trip, but he always makes Annie the queen of every kingdom he creates. Wow. So I had that line in there as a, as a character description. Sure. But, um, and then it was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's kind of lines up nicely with the materials we have, plus the Alice in Wonderland, you know, it's like very playful and, 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 and silly and, and fantastic. So let's, let's do that. And then, you know, there's that corridor, the hexagonal corridor that we called it the Kubrick corridor because it looks like it's out of 2001. <laughs> right. Or uh, I prefer to call it the Empire Strikes Back corridor because it reminded me of Bespin. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that's a round corridor, but it doesn't matter. Uh, that was a matter of uh, American Apparel was very kind to just donate pallets and pallets of cardboard. Um, wow. We pulled up a truck and they're like, "What do you need?" Um, you know, and those spin- we had spindles from them that made the spike bed that made, you know, that, that killed the guy from OK Go, and then um, we had these pallets of clean cardboard with these perfect holes on them. And at first we were like, "Ah, if only they didn't have holes." And then we're like, "You know what?" take them sure uh and i showed him to the art director and i was like what do we think do we think we can make like a space tunnel so that wasn't in the script that was there that tender moment was there but the fact that it was this hexagonal space tunnel with shafts of light coming through these perfect holes like no that was in the script well and it just and Um, it adds so much to it i mean that that scene is beautiful you know for the content but because of everything surrounding them i mean that's just such a gorgeous scene yeah, and then yeah, Dave's hand turns to paper, or Dave's hand, Dave's hand turns to cardboard is in the script. But I didn't think we'd get you know fingernails. Sure, on the right. Hand. Like oh my god. Um, uh, and then uh, I, I remember the, the the Gordon nut punch that was um, <laughs> the art director's idea because right. we we had something else in there. I can't remember what it was, but but we wanted to show that they weren't safe but we, you can't kill someone right out of the gate. Right. And part of that is, you know, we do that with Gordon uh, cutting his finger and, and the maze drinking his blood, and then he is, he is alerted to the fact that they are not safe. Right. Um, which is why he doesn't want them to push the button, which is why he knows that there's a minotaur, which is why he's sort of a, a step ahead of everyone else, because he's, as Dave's bestie, he's the other nerd who knows how these things work. Um and he was also sort of the window for the audience into into sort of, sort of some of the expectations. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, I'm almost sure the nut punch was Jeff White's idea, the <laughs> art director. So it was, you know, it was very. I I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what we had to do. I knew what the movie was about. But sure. it's also very much about like what's the best idea, and I don't care where it comes from. Absolutely. Which, if there's a good idea, I'm not going to miss out on, on a chance to, to execute it. Sure. Um, so, you know, you talked a little bit about <clears throat> like Gilliam and Carpenter, and those influences are definitely in here. Uh, I get, you know, just a lot of the, the kind of crazy 80s high concept things, you know, Buckaroo Banzai. I mean, there's a, there's a ton that, 100%. Are, 
that I'm uh, there's a ton that I'm seeing in the film. What was uh, the hardest challenge in, in balancing tone? I mean, because it it does get kind of dark in places, and it but it is you know also remains whimsical. I mean, it does balance tone a lot like those movies from from the eighties did. What was that challenge yeah, like for you? London. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, huh. I don't know how we pulled that off. Um, <laughs> okay. I I attempted to say it's on the page, okay. and it was in casting. I mean. Everybody who said yes to this movie said yes because they got it. Nobody said yes as a favor to me. Sure. Nobody said yes. Um, nobody said yes because their agent told them to, and definitely nobody said yes for the money. It was, they got it. And it, it, that just made it so much easier. Right. Um, and then, you know, there are decisions in editing, you know, where you're like, okay, let's, uh, this is over the top. This is really funny, but it's over the top or inappropriate or okay, this is Looney Tunes at, this is like Looney Tunes times 10, let's do Looney Tunes times 2, you know. Sure, um, sure. Or Looney Tunes divided by 2 is more like it. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> I'm terrible at math. But it, it was, you know, there were definitely choices in the edit bay that kept it uniform. And there were early choices where that would bump people, like, no, that's too silly, that's not, a, that, that's inappropriate, That's that doesn't make sense. Um and then re-figuring re where certain things happen so that there's a better logic to it that, that felt totally more more solid. But, you know, um, we didn't have a lot of takes, and sure. we had no rehearsals, sure. no table reads, no character, no chemistry reads or anything. Wow. Every, every role was offer only, so it was just whoever said yes was in the movie. That's crazy. Um, so it, it just everybody who said yes got it. Sure. Um, and they got each other, and they they riffed nicely off each other. And there's a you know there's a there was a fair amount of improv, not much of which is actually in the movie, but because we didn't have a table read, because we didn't have time to get to know each other, it's like well let's let them get to know each other on set by staying out of the way and let them riff and let them laugh and let them feel each other out. You right. Know, the cameras are rolling and the producers freaking out. It's like, well, but this is the only chance we have for these people to actually try to connect. So sure. let's let them do that, even even if it's going to end up on the editing room floor. Um, and you want everyone to feel free and safe to experiment and explore and everything, too, even if you just end up with pretty much what's on the page. Absolutely. Um, so, um, I mean, a lot of it was it was on the page. We, we had a lot of time, because it took us years to raise the money, so we had a lot of time be like this is too you know he wouldn't make light of this moment or sure sure you know how funny would it be if he said what i would say in this moment you know like it's very serious when the minotaur speaking through Brynn and she's like it's protector and prisoner right. and gordon's like protect prisoner you know it's like <laughs> that might be something i would say right. so we'll put it in there and we'll see if it works you know maybe it doesn't um and if it doesn't work, we throw it out, you know? Sure. Um, so... But, you know, yeah, I don't... I don't, I, hmm, I don't... I don't know how much I can take credit for for those... That tonal mashup. I actually saw John Landis speak at the um, public library here downtown L.A., and I wanted to ask that same question. I had my hand raised for the whole Q&A. I mean, I never called that. I mean, oh, but no. I wanted to ask that... <laughs> I want to ask that same question regarding American Werewolf. Like, was it in the casting? Was it in the script? Was it something you found on set? Was it something you discovered in the edit room? And I'm, you know, I really wanted to ask the question, and I can almost guarantee you that the answer would have been all of the above. 
<laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think know. it. I think it becomes like as far as even you know, I've heard Landis speak before, and a lot of directors who who balance tone like this. Um, and just, you know, it, it is kind of a collaborative thing and it is on the page, but it's, it's knowing the genre. And I think, you know, just hearing what some of your influences were, I think you had a really good grasp on, on your genres here and, and, you know, knowing what to expect and what to subvert and, and, and that kind of thing. Well, I always, I always said like, look, let's make a list of five movies. Right. And somewhere in the, in this five movies, in this list of five movies is our movie. And when you see our movie, you should probably be able to name that list you know right and it's what you'd expect it's you know it's not necessarily some of the things that have come up so far in the discussion um although the the closing credits is absolutely an homage to the buck through bonds like closing credits but uh um you know it's evil dead 2 it's raiders of the lost ark it's it's what you'd expect it's if you grew up in the 80s and liked weird great stuff all in there you know awesome and hopefully, hopefully it stands on its own. Like I, I the, the most rewarding thing for me is that, you know, people half my age love this movie. And I just was telling the story that the Cleveland International Film Festival, a woman in her seventies responded to the, the emotional climax where the, the characters are sort of pulling off these, these projections, these costumes that are being projected onto them by the maze or society or each other or themselves, right, right. you know. And, and stripping away to get down to who they really are, to be able to see each other and be together just as as their true selves. Absolutely. And this this woman in her 70s teared up telling me, like, she walks into a room and people only see an old person. Wow. And they, they don't see her value, they don't see her knowledge, they don't see her heart, they don't see who she is um, at, at her core. They see what physically she's become and then all of the associations that go with that and... and they just dump all of these assumptions on her because of her age. And she, sure. she was responding tearfully to that. Well, she's in her 70s. She doesn't give a fuck about Evil Dead 2. Right. You know? <laughs> um, but it landed, you know? And that has that has been incredibly rewarding and, and I have to say extremely unexpected. Absolutely. That, that, that our demographic isn't as... Uh, our demographic isn't dudes like me, basically. Right. <laughs> Well, it's 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 really uh, an incredible accomplishment in in filmmaking, um, and I can't wait to see what happens next with it. Um, but speaking of, of of next, do you have anything lined up to to direct again? I do. Um, I've been looking at a couple of children's books, interestingly enough, just because they have these crazy fantasy worlds. Sure. Um, that that I think would be a lot of fun. Super visual, very very elaborate. Um, esque, uh, Dark Crystal esque. Um, but I also, you know, I don't want to get too big too fast. So, um, we're, Steve and I are working on, we've got three ideas we love, and we're really focusing on one that is, is shootable. It's very makeable. Sure. Um, not for a Dave Manamay's budget. It would have to be much more than that. But, um, we're working on a movie right now. And I was just prepping uh, like a, a deck with a look book for it, and I'm extremely excited. And it's about a musician, and it's got monsters, and I love it. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for for uh, for sitting in today. This is this has been really great. Uh, like I said, anytime, I, my pleasure. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what happens with the film, and I can't wait to see what you do next. And uh, 
yeah thank you so much uh so for bigger show this has been mike d thank you all so much for listening and check out the rest of our chattanooga film festival coverage the rest of this week and we will catch you next time goodbye we're gonna need a big show